You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. I have to find it under all these candy jokes. Just a second until I use computers in the way. Well, a couple of Sundays ago, I was teaching Sunday school. If y'all were here, you remember me talking about making a joyful noise into the Lord. So um, hopefully y'all will pray that this noise will be joyful and that we'll be uh, praising unto God and that it will bless your hearts um, and, and that God will be glorified and praised through this.
I betray you? Kids can be dismissed to Street Church. Well, howdy, y'all. I promised the first class this morning I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I lied. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I promise I won't say that again because I'm not an authentic cowboy. Uh, today, the message that we're going to be looking at today is the glory of God. I mentioned uh, in Sunday school a little bit, a, a few verses that we touched on that I ended up landing on for my message for today's service. Originally, I was, I was planning on talking about bitterness and forgiveness, but it just, no matter how much I started working on that message, did not feel right, and then I landed on glory, the glory of God and the impact that God has in our lives and the purpose that we struggle through certain things, uh, which you could translate it a little bit into bitterness and letting things go, but ultimately, everything that we endure, everything that we go through is all for the glory of God. So today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would turn there. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read a poem, which I'll have up on the screen here in a second, not quite yet. In a little village not far from Windsor Castle in England, there is one of the world's most famous cemeteries located at Stoke Pogus. And I don't know if I'm quite saying that last word right, uh, but it's, it's located there. It was on this site that Thomas Gray penned his famous poem, elegy written in a country churchyard. One stanza of that poem goes like this, and you can put it up on the screen. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Man's glory does not last. It does not last, but... God's glory is eternal. That's where our focus should be. Our, our glory, all on our own, everything we, we strive for, our egos and all that is, is just in vain. It, it will wither away and it will just end up in the ground and often will be forgotten. But God's glory is eternal. God has purposefully decided to share that glory with us. And in this first section of this letter, Peter shared four wonderful discoveries that he had made about the glory of God. And I want to share that with you today. Point number one is Christians are born for glory. When we were placed in the garden, God had intended us to share our time with him and to be in his presence and to bask in his glory and, and just enjoy being with him and all that he has for us, he intended for us, and unfortunately, sin entered into the world and things were changed and we were now set outside of the presence of God. Well, guess what? There was an answer for that. In, the, in chapter 3 of Genesis, God had an answer to that problem. He was going to send his son, which is the only option to bring us back into the presence of God, to pay for the penalty for that sin, which is ultimately death, to be in the presence of God again. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers have been begotten again in verse 3. So if you are sitting there, you can see in verse 3, we have been begotten again to a living hope, and that hope includes the glory of God. But what do we mean by the glory of God? 
The glory of God means the sum total of all that God is and does. It is everything God is and does. That's the glory of God. Glory is not a separate attribute or characteristic of God like holiness, wisdom, or mercy. Everything that God is and does is characterized by glory. And God's glory is more magnificent than anything in this existence. He's amazing. And when we glory him, when we give him honor, when we give him praise, he's worth giving the glory and the praise. He is worth honoring and and shouting excitement and joy towards but he wants us to have that same joy and excitement and, and uh, presence with him. He is glorious in wisdom and power so that everything he thinks and does is marked by glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You cannot help but notice how powerful and amazing God is and why David wrote what he wrote when he stared up into the stars just by looking up. And you look at the landscapes that are untouched by man and you see the beauty of what God created. And that's only a small glimpse of his magnificence. It just is a small, itty-bitty, minuscule. And and David saw himself as nothing and yet God decided to love him anyway. He's even mentioned in the lineage of Christ. (laughs) That's something. He reveals his glory in creation and his dealings with the people of Israel, and especially his glory is revealed in his plan of salvation for lost sinners. That is worth praising God for alone. When we were born the first time, we were not born for glory. 1 Peter 1.24 says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flowers of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Whatever feeble glory man has will eventually fade and disappear, but the glory of the Lord is eternal. If it gets old that I keep saying it's eternal, I'm just going to keep hitting that mark because it is eternal. God is forever from beginning and end. He is there forever, and he's unchanging, unmovable, uncorruptible, and he is is our God. I'm just glad that he's our God, and he loves us, and he sent his son for us, and It is not something that will fade away. There's nothing we can do to change that. There's nothing in our own power to save ourselves or to be gloried whatsoever. Nothing that we have to offer will ever amount to anything near the glory of God. As a matter of fact, there's not one person that saw the full glory of God yet. Because if we were to be in the full presence of him and see all of his glory, we wouldn't be able to stand it. Because it's too much for us. And yet we have anything to boast about? I certainly don't, and anybody that thinks they do is, is clearly not seeing God clearly. <laughs> when you see who God really is, when you see his magnificence and what he's accomplished, just on the cross alone should make us realize and humble us that our, what we have to bring, to, what we have to offer, what we have to boast about is nothing compared to his glory. The works of man done for the glory of God, however, will last and be rewarded. 1 John 2.17, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The selfish human achievements of sinners will one day vanish to be seen no more. And one reason that we have encyclopedias is so that way we can learn about the famous people who are now forgotten. We have to constantly be reminded of who came before us. 
and what they accomplished because what they did still, in comparison to what Jesus Christ did, is not lasting. It was just for a time. Peter gave two descriptions to help us better understand this wonderful truth about God's glory. Letter A, a Christian's birth described, verses 2 and 3, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This miracle all began with God. We were chosen by our Father. How many of you are thankful you were chosen? And I know I am. If I was not chosen, well, we were all chosen, so that's not even an option, but we, we do believe we're not chosen. We do believe it's too good to be true, but guess what? He chose us anyway. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, before he created this world, he knew and chose us to be with him, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This took place in the deep councils of eternity, and we knew nothing about it until it was revealed to us in the word of God. This election was not based on anything we had done. Thank, for, thank the Lord for that. Because we were not even on the scene yet. It wasn't something we accomplished back in Genesis. We weren't there. But he knows all, and he is from the beginning and the end, and he knows exactly who he loved, and that was me. A sinner, a horrible husband, a terrible dad. He chose me anyway. <laughs> chose to do something with me to, to rekindle my marriage, to shape my fatherhood, to be the man I was meant to be, to be in his presence again and to enjoy peace and joy undescribable and to finally be able to lead my family in a godly legacy and to be in a ministry that I don't deserve and to be in a church I don't belong because I'm a sinner. He died for me and he chose to do something with me. And he did that for every single one of you there. No matter who is sitting here that doesn't believe that, guess what? He did anyway. No matter how wicked you think you are, no matter how far you think you've gone, God can reach anywhere and can reach as low as you are. We can't explain it, but we can rejoice in it. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Foreknowledge in verse 2 does not suggest that God merely knew ahead of time that that we would believe, and therefore he chose us because we would believe. There are some religions that believe that there's a very specific few that get to go to heaven because he already knew and chose them specifically, and the rest are kind of SOL. Um, sorry, out of luck. <clears throat> this would raise the question, though, if that was the case. Who or what made us choose Christ? 
It would take our salvation completely out of God's hands if it had anything other than God. If there was any other option, it wouldn't. It would be out of God's hands at that point. In the Bible, to foreknow means to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. He very specifically set his love on us individually, personally, as our Father. It, it is used the same way in Amos 3.2. It says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God set his electing love on the nation of Israel. But the plan of salvation includes more than the Father's electing love. It also includes the work of the Spirit in convicting the sinner and bringing them to faith in Christ. The best commentary on this thought and the best commentary on anything in the Bible is the Bible, but more specifically for this very specific area, the Second Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to be the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God had to die on the cross for our sins, or there would be no salvation. In the next slide, we have been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. It takes all three if there is to be a true experience of salvation. And as far as as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. He knew and chose me to be saved. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died on the cross for me. And as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one day in October 2003 when I heard the gospel and received Christ. He stirred in my heart and shook me to the core and said, Hey, he convicted me and said, You don't deserve to be with me. But the Son died for you. And you can be with me forever. Because I loved you. I sent my only begotten Son for you. It was then that it all came together, but it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. If we separate these ministries, we will either deny divine sovereignty or human responsibility. Peter does not deny man's part in God's plan to save sinners. In 1 Peter 1.23, he emphasizes the fact that the gospel was preached to these people and that they heard it and believed. He said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God is incorruptible. God is incorruptible. His love is incorruptible. And there's nothing that could be changed by it. It was through that that we were born again. Peter's own example at Pentecost is proof that we do not leave it all with God and never urge lost sinners to come to Christ. The same God who ordains the end, our salvation, also ordains the means to the end, the preaching of the gospel of the grace of God. He uses people to share the gospel. If you watch this morning's message it is through our witness, our testimony, our honest and real testimony and being real Christians and being authentic with people and truly being there with people in the hurt and the pain and loving them and genuinely caring about them and praying for them and being 
available and around and sharing the good news of the gospel. That is what our part is in this. He intended for us to go out and share the gospel to all the ends of the earth. But it is his word that has that power to do that. It's his spirit that moves and convicts. It's not our eloquent words or our ability to say things that convince people. It is the power of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and the word of the Lord that has an impact in their hearts and minds and ultimately in their eternity. Letter B, a Christian's hope is described here. To begin with, it is a living hope. Jesus is not dead. He is risen. It's a living hope because it is grounded on the living word of God. Look at verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. It was made possible by the living Son of God who arose from the dead. A living hope is one that has life in it and therefore can give life to us. Because it has life, it grows and becomes greater and more beautiful as time goes on. Time destroys most hopes. They fade and then die. But the passing of time only makes a Christian's hope much more glorious. The more time we spend in God's presence, the more hope we have and the stronger our faith in him. Peter called this hope an inheritance. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. And as the children of the king, we share his inheritance in glory. Romans 8, 17 and 18. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we, we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We are included in Christ's list or are his last will and testimony and we share the glory with him. In John 17, 22 through 24, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. Father, he's praying to God the Father here, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Take a moment and read Jesus' prayer for us, his followers, and you see his love towards us. Note the description of this inheritance, for it is totally unlike any earthly inheritance we can get. For one thing, it's incorruptible. Does anybody have an uh, incorruptible inheritance here on the earth that you know about? <laughs> the answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. Nothing can ruin this inheritance because it's undefiled. It cannot be stained or cheapened in any way. No matter how hard Satan tries, he cannot cheapen the word of God. He cannot cheapen the inheritance that we will have with him. It will never grow old because it is eternal. It cannot wear out, nor can it disappoint us in any way. When we get there, we are going to be dumbfounded. And I, I'm convinced, no matter what it is, we can't help but glory in God for it. We cannot help but praise God for it because it will be undescribably, unimaginably amazing. 
In 1 Peter 1, 5 and verse 9, this inheritance is called salvation. The believer is already saved through faith in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The completion of that salvation awaits on the return of the Savior when he takes us with him. Then we shall have new bodies and enter into a new environment, the heavenly city that he's preparing for us, the mansions he has laid wait for us. In verse 7, Peter called this hope the appearing of Jesus Christ. Paul called this the blessed hope in Titus 2.13, where he says, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior Jesus Christ. What a thrilling thing it is to know that we are born for glory. People are often asking the question, why am I here? Well, we are here for him. (laughs) To be with him, to enjoy, to be blessed by him, and, and to be in his presence and to praise him. We are born for glory. When we were born again, we exchanged the passing glory of man, which is corruptible, which does fade away, for the eternal glory of God. And the second thing is Christians are kept for glory. 1 Peter 1.5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is the glory being reserved for us, but we are being kept for the glory. Sometimes when you travel and go to a, a hotel or motel, you'll find out that the reservations got mixed up or messed up or sometimes canceled, and you don't have a room. But let me tell you this, this won't happen when we arrive in heaven. It's guaranteed. Our future home and inheritance are guaranteed and reserved forever for us. When we get there, it's ready. And it is better than any hotel or motel you've ever been to. (laughs) But what if we don't make it, you might ask? Well, let me tell you, once you're saved, always saved, you are sealed and kept by him, there is not one thing, no principality or power that can separate us from the love of God. We are saved and sealed forever, shut in and kept by him until we get to see him a second time. <laughs> see there in verse 5, for all believers are being kept by the power of God. The word translated kept is a military word that means guarded or shielded. The tense of the verb reveals that we are constantly being guarded by God, assuring us that we shall safely arrive in heaven. Believers are not kept by their own power, thankfully, but by the power of God. Our faith in Christ has so united us to him that his power guards us and it guides us. We are not kept by our strength, but by his faithfulness. When we are weak, he is strong. He carries us when we cannot walk. We cannot crawl forward. He is lifting us up and carrying us forward. This same truth is repeated in 1 Peter 1.9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. It is encouraging to know that we are guarded for glory. And according to, according to Romans 8.30, we have already been glorified. All that awaits is this public revelation of, of this glory. If any believer were lost, it would rob God of his glory. If his glory is eternal and it's forever then it's impossible, again, for us to be separated from him. Once we are his, we are his forever. 
if we were able to lose our salvation because we had anything to do with it in the first place, if we had any reason to boast in our salvation because it's something we accomplished, then, there's, then God's glory is not that great. But because we had nothing to do with it, and because he had everything to do with it, and he paid the ultimate price for us, then it's him that we glorify. It's his glory that's magnificent, and we have nothing to boast about, and we can have all assurance in him and be certain that we will be in heaven, that he has already given us his glory and his assurance. And Jesus said in John seventeen twenty four, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundations of the world. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The assurance of heaven is a great help to us today. We are sealed, and it gives us hope. We can look forward to his coming back. It gives us a hope. No matter how hard it gets, it gives us a hope to look forward to when he comes back and brings us to be in his presence and to glory in his, his magnificence, to see him for he, all he really is, to be able to be in a body that can stand before him and, and just praise him. As Dr. James M. Gray expressed it, in one of his songs, Who Can Mind the Journey When the Road Leads Home? The journey doesn't seem so bad when you see the end, when you know where it's headed. You can endure it because you, knew how, you know how far it is. We don't necessarily know how long that road is for us, but we know where it leads. If suffering today means glory tomorrow, then suffering becomes a blessing to us. And I think moms can understand that having given birth. It's a temporary pain and suffering, but man, there is something to be blessed by right afterwards, and it's worth it because you know what's coming afterwards. The unsaved have their glory now, but it will be followed by an eternal suffering away from the glory of God. That's a sobering thing to think about as well. The third point here is Christians are being prepared for glory. Why do we suffer? We are being prepared. Look at verses 6 and 7. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that does perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We must keep in mind that all God plans and performs here is preparation for what he has in store for us in heaven he is preparing us for the life and service yet to come nobody yet knows all that is in store for us in heaven but we do know this life today is a school in which god trains us for our future ministry in eternity it's just a temporary training session to test us, to strengthen us, to build us up, to get us ready. This explains the presence of trials in our lives. They are some of God's tools and textbooks in the school of Christian experience. Peter used the word trials rather than tribulations or persecutions because he was dealing with the general problems that Christians face as they are surrounded by unbelievers. There are a lot of trials and tribulations in this world. There's a lot of pain in this world. And if you watch the news even for a moment these days, you see where this world is headed. And it's scary. 
it's scary to think what we're going to have to endure. It's even more scary to think about what our children will have to endure. And I'm so excited and, and looking forward to his second coming, and I, for the sake of my kids, would wish it's today so they didn't have to endure any pain at all moving forward. But Peter shared several facts about these trials for us. Letter A, trials meet needs. The phrase, if need be, in verse 6 indicates that there are special times when God knows that we need to go through these trials. Sometimes trials discipline us when we have disobeyed God's will. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Sometimes it's important to have a teacher that's willing to push you hard. To, yet, to steer you straight, to get in your face. It's good to have a parent that's willing to not spare the rod. To steer their kids straight. To get them in, right, in, the, in the right direction. And yeah, it's painful when somebody pushes you. And this world says, oh, we have to be gentle and kind. and, and not, we, can't, we can't say anything to the kids. We just need to let them do whatever they want to do. Well, I disagree. I went to a school that didn't care about my grades, and my grades were terrible. I was struggling. I couldn't, I couldn't make it. I couldn't figure it out. It was too hard. But the second I, I switched schools, I went to a harder school, and all of a sudden the pressure was there, and I had teachers that actually cared and pushed me and held me to a standard. That's when I flourished. And it's the same way in the military. It's the same way in jobs. You want a job that you actually are cared about and pushed in rather than a job where you go and nobody cares and, and you're just there twiddling your thumbs, and, and there's no purpose there. Well, God uses trials and opportunities to help us to grow in order to bring us up and to build us and to strengthen us. You cannot build a muscle without having some resistance. It's impossible. You're either going to maintain or you're going to atrophy, depending on what you're doing. At other times, trials prepare us for spiritual growth or even help us to prevent us from sinning. We do not always know the need being met, but we can trust God to know and to do what is best for us. Letter B, trials are varied. They are not the same all the time. Peter used the word manifold, which literally means variegated or many-colored. He used the same word to describe God's grace in uh, chapter 4, verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's grace comes in many forms, many sizes, and is constantly meeting our needs. No matter what color our day may be, a blue Monday or a gray Tuesday, God has grace sufficient to meet our needs. Every single day. We must not think that because we have overcome one kind of trial that we will automatically win them all. Look at Israel when they were conquering the Canaan land and tell me that they didn't believe that because they went at Jericho, they were now strong enough to conquer the next one all on their own. Well, they thought that and they lost. No, they need to continually rely on God. Trials are varied and God matches the trial to our strengths and needs. Letter C, trials are not easy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a trial, would it? Peter did not suggest that we take a careless attitude towards God's or towards trials because this would be deceitful. Trials produce what he called heaviness here. The word means to experience grief or pain. 
It is used to describe our Lord in Gethsemane and the sorrow of believers at the deaths of loved ones. To deny that our trials are painful is to make them even worse. Christians must accept the fact that there are difficult experiences in life and not put on a brave front just to appear more spiritual to other people. It is better to admit it hurts. Letter D, trials are controlled by God. They do not last forever. They are for a season. If it lasted forever, I wouldn't be able to bear it, but he doesn't give us a trial we can't bear and a way without escape. It is for a season. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock, but if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer a minute longer. I can speak from experience that I wasn't willing to follow him for many years until recently and wondered why I was dealing with the stuff I was dealing with. He just kept the heat there until I was willing to say, Lord, I do need you, (laughs) and I need to follow you, and I need to submit to you. He was preparing me, and it would have been a lot faster if I had just done what he asked in the first place, but I was stubborn. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us and that we bring glory to him alone. Peter illustrated this by referring to the goldsmith. No goldsmith would deliberately waste the precious ore. He would put it into the smelting furnace long enough to remove the cheap impurities. Then he would pour it out and make from it a beautiful thing of value. It has been said that the eastern goldsmith kept the metal in the furnace until he could see his face reflected in it. So our Lord keeps us in the furnace of suffering until we reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. The important point is that this glory is not fully revealed until Jesus returns for his church. Our trying experiences today are preparing us for glory tomorrow. When we see Jesus Christ, we will bring praise and honor and glory to him if we have been faithful in the sufferings in this life. This explains why Peter associated rejoicing and suffering. While we may not be able to rejoice as we look around in our trials, we can rejoice as we look ahead. Just as the assayer tests the gold to see if it is pure or counterfeit, so the trials of life test our faith to prove its sincerity. A faith cannot be tested, or faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Job went through many painful trials, all of them with God's approval, and yet he understood this truth about the refiner's fire. Job 23.10 says, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And he did. It is encouraging to know that we are born for glory, kept for glory, and being prepared for glory. But the fourth discovery Peter shared with his readers is probably the most exciting of all of them. Number four, Christians can enjoy the glory now. We can glory in God now. The Christian philosophy of life is not a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by kind of hope. It carries with it a present dynamic that can turn suffering into glory today. Peter gave four directions for enjoying the glory now, even in the midst of trials. Letter A, it's to love Christ. We can glory in him because we can love him. Look at verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom... Though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Our love for Christ is not based on physical sight because we have not seen him. 
It is not, or it is based on our spiritual relationship with him and what the word has taught us about him. The Holy Spirit has poured out God's love into our hearts and we return that love to him. When you find yourself in a trial and you hurt, immediately lift your heart to Christ in true love and worship. Why? Why would we do this? Because this will take the poison out of the experience and replace it with healing medicine. When you are so self-focused on the pain and, and the trial you are in, you forget to keep your eyes on Christ, the one who is giving you comfort and the one giving you hope and the one giving you encouragement, and you start to praise him through the storm. Satan wants us to, he wants to use tr life's trials to bring out the worst in us, but God wants to bring out the best in us through those trials. If we love ourselves more than we love Christ, then we will not experience any of that glory right now. We will be so self-focused and, and wallowing in the pain that we're in and self-pitying that we fail to see how good God is and what he can do with this. The fire will burn us, not purify us, if we choose to focus on ourselves. Letter B, we trust in Christ. We love Christ, letter A. Letter B, we trust in him. Verse 8, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing. We must live by faith and not by sight. An elderly lady fell and broke her leg while attending a summer Bible conference. She said to the pastor who visited her, I know the Lord led me to the conference, but I don't see why this had to happen, and I don't see any good coming from it. Wisely, the pastor replied, Romans 8.28 does not say that we will see all things working together for good. It says we know it. It doesn't say we'll see how it all works together. We just know it all works together for good. Faith means surrendering all to God and obeying his word in spite of circumstances and consequences. Love and faith go together. When you love someone, you trust them. And faith and love together help to strengthen hope. Where you find faith and love, you will find confidence for the future. How can we grow in faith during times of testing and suffering? I don't know if I have a slide for that one or not, but that's okay. How can we grow in faith during times of testing and suffering? I did, okay. Does anybody have an idea? It's the same way we grow in faith when things seem to be going well. By feeding on the word of God. Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We grow in faith during trials and suffering when we are spending time with him, when we are in the word of God, when we see his power, when we feel his presence. Our fellowship with Christ through his word not only strengthens our faith, but it also deepens our love for him. It is a basic principle of Christian living that we spend time in the word when God is testing us and Satan is tempting us. You might ask, how often do we need to spend time in the word? Well, let me ask you this. How often is God testing us and how often is Satan testing us? Every day. So then even more, we need to be in the word of God. That's our shield, it's our protection, it's our weapon against Satan. It's a, we a weapon against all of the principalities and powers and demonic forces 
in the spiritual warfare that we are constantly facing and in the battles for our loved ones, the word of God is our strength and our power and our hope. And without it, we, we have nothing to stand on. So even more so, we need to be in it. Let her see rejoice in Christ. Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You may not be able to rejoice over the circumstances, but you can rejoice in them by centering your heart and mind on Jesus Christ. Each experience of trial helps us learn something new and wonderful about our Savior. Abraham discovered new, discovered new truths about the Lord on the mount where he offered his son in Genesis chapter 2. The three Hebrew children discovered his nearness when they went through the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. Paul learned the suffer, or sufficiency of God's grace when he suffered with a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. The joy Jesus produces is unspeakable and full of glory. This joy is so deep and so wonderful we cannot even express it. Letter D, receive from Christ. Verses 9 through 12, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of that grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Believing is receiving. Believing receiving is God's way of meeting our needs. If we love him, trust him, and rejoice in him, then we can receive from him all that we need to to turn the trials into triumphs. Charles Spurgeon used to say, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. It doesn't take much from us to believe in Jesus Christ, and that will take us to heaven. But when we have great faith, then we feel the presence of him in our inner being, in our soul. We, we feel him with us. We are encouraged by him. It's not enough that we long for heaven during times of suffering, for anybody can do that. But what Peter urged his readers to do was exercise love, faith, and rejoicing so that they might experience some of the glory of heaven in the midst of suffering now. The amazing thing is that this salvation we are awaiting, the return of Christ, was part of God's great plan for us for eternity. The Old Testament prophets wrote about this salvation and studied closely what God revealed to them. They saw the sufferings of the Messiah and also the glory that would follow, but they could not fully understand the connection between the two. No matter how hard they studied, no matter how much they spent their lives devoted to figuring out what the word of God in the Old Testament meant, they could not connect the two. Which is why when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, Testelestai, it's finished. And when the Holy Spirit came back, it all started to make sense. <laughs> The puzzle pieces started to come together. In fact, in some of the prophecies, the Messiah's sufferings and glory are blended in one verse or paragraph. When Jesus came to the earth, the Jewish teachers were awaiting a conquering Messiah who would defeat Israel's enemies and establish the glorious kingdom promised to David, which is why many of them lost hope when this didn't happen. They expected him to come back and conquer. Well, he came back and died, and they were like, what? <laughs> 
they, 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 it was so blended because the prophets could not figure out what the full plan was. And I don't think anybody earthly can know the full, full plan or story. But guess what? God knows the whole thing. Even his own disciples, Jesus, Jesus' disciples weren't clear about the end for his death on the cross. They still questioned it. Even Peter rebuked him saying, don't do this. They were still inquiring about the Jewish kingdom even after his resurrection. God told the prophets that they were ministering for a future generation. Between the suffering of Messiah and his return in glory comes what we call the age of the church. That's where we are. The truth about the church was hidden. It was a hidden mystery in the Old Testament period. The Old Testament believers looked ahead, and by faith they saw, as it were, two mountain peaks. One was Mount Calvary, where Messiah suffered and died. That was written in Isaiah 53, and Mount Olivet, where he will return in glory, Zechariah 14.4. They could not see the valley in between the present age of the church. They, they just, they, it wasn't known. They just knew some of the details. They could not see it. If the Old Testament prophets searched so diligently into the truths of salvations and yet, or salvation and yet had so little to go on, how much more ought to we search into this subject now that we have the complete word of God? We should be diligently seeking and learning and, and having our hope. We look at the world right now, we look at the news and all the, the turmoil and, and the hopelessness and the suffering. We can have full and entire hope by looking at the word of God. He has laid it out. In the book of Revelation, there is so much hope there. They look at that as the doomsday book or the, the judgment book, but there is hope. Jesus is coming back, and he is establishing his kingdom, and, and it's going to be beautiful. It's hope for us. And it's also a reason to share the gospel, because there are people that aren't going, aren't going to enjoy that. The same Holy Spirit who taught the prophets and through them wrote the word of God can teach us the truths in it. John sixteen twelve through 15, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but, whos, or, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore, I, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. We can learn these truths of the Old Testament as well as from the New Testament. You can find Christ in every part of the Old Testament scriptures. His scarlet thread is woven throughout every section of the Old Testament, all the way leading up to him. In times of trials, you can turn to the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, and find all that you need for encouragement and enlightenment. Yes, for Christians, it is glory all the way. We, when we trusted Christ, we were born for glory. We were kept for glory. As we obey him and experience trials, we are being prepared for glory. If someone would come play on the piano softly, the altar will be open here in a moment. When we love him, trust him, and rejoice in him, we experience the glory here and now. I have good news for you guys. There are, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of unknowns and a lot of questions, but the one thing we can stand firm on, the one foundation that is here and now for us is the word of God. 
He's preparing us for something. And I'm excited about it. When I first surrendered to preach, it was not a quick and easy process for me. I was a horrible husband, not a godly father, heavy into addiction and sin and walking astray. I was saved, yes, but I did not follow him closely. I, if anything, was rebelling against God and, and yelling at him for it because it was his fault for some reason. And I'm thankful that I was a lost sheep that he was willing to go fight for to bring back into the safety of the pastor and say, hey, I'm going to use you for something. Will you knock it off? He's a good father, and he corrected me when I needed it. He brought me to a mountaintop, literally, and he said, I need you, but there's some things you need to take care of. I need you to come clean. I need you to be honest about what you're doing right now. And I also need you to forgive those that have hurt you. You're holding on to unforgiveness, and it is destroying you. So I went to an altar and spent 10 minutes there trying to say a word in prayer to God to forgive my dad and to forgive other people that have hurt me in my life, and I couldn't get the words out. It was like Satan was standing right there and said, you don't want to do this. You're going to regret doing this. If you let go of this, you have nothing left to hold on to. You're not going to be able to hold on to this anymore, and you won't have any more power. Well, Jesus died for me. He paid a penalty for me. He had a plan for me. He had hope that he wanted to give me, and he had a purpose for my life, and I needed to let go, and I knew this, and I said, okay. And guess what I did? I bloodied my knuckles on those stairs. Literally, I punched until the words came out. I started to forgive the unforgivable. And then I proceeded just out of nowhere and thanked God for those painful moments. Thanked God for the things I went through in my life and I, I praised him for it. And it was at that moment, then I was able to say, Lord, I'm, I'm ready, I'm yours, do what you will with. And not a few weeks later, three weeks or so, it was when he called me to preach and then three weeks after long prayer and, and asking God, is this really what you want from me? Because I'm not, I don't know the word. I don't know how to lead people. I'm not a public speaker. I am terrified to get in front of people. Well, when I realized by praying to him, Lord, you don't want me. <laughs> well, he can do anything with anybody. Just like he did in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he used the most unlikely to do the most amazing things because of his power. It was all about him. When I realized that, then I said, Lord, if you can do it with them, you can do it with me. So here I am. I'll, I'll be a preacher for you. <laughs> he transformed my marriage, transformed who I was, helped me to be a spiritual leader finally in my home, and transformed my job and my attitude, and I have hope and I can glory in him now. So if you're convicted... If you're holding on to something, the altar's open. You can come and pray and lay it all out for him because, trust me, Satan was lying when he said you're going to regret it. There's not one moment I regret saying yes to God and no to Satan. So take a moment and praise him if, if you've given him all.
or give them all now and praise him for it. It's open.